Mr. President, the world's dying to know, is it boxers or briefs? <laughs> Usually briefs. <laughs> I can't believe she did that. That was a 1994 exchange between a teenage American voter and sitting President William Jefferson Clinton. Running against an incumbent, Republican George W. Bush, in 1992, Clinton wanted to emphasize his youth. He played the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show, and he appeared on MTV as part of the cable music channel's youth voter initiative, Choose or Lose. In a town hall-style symposium, when asked by a young voter whether he had ever tried marijuana, Clinton deadpanned to the audience, I didn't inhale. It was a canny answer. It showed that Clinton wasn't a prude while expressing caution about the wisdom of intoxication. It also made Clinton the first president to talk about recreational drug use outside of a criminal justice context. Clinton promised to return to the channel if he were elected, and in 1994 he did, leading to the famous Boxers or Briefs episode, where he also became the first president to let an audience imagine him, well, in his underpants? Between 1968 and 1988, that's five presidential elections. Only one Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, won election to the White House. So MTV was onto something during the Clinton campaign. Recruiting younger voters was a way to break Republicans' hold on the presidency without being overtly partisan. Like Rock the Vote, an earlier initiative by Virgin Record executive Jeff Ayeroff, MTV sought to elevate its cultural position and use the power of cool to mobilize the 18- to 29-year-old demographic, only 20% of whom had cast a vote in 1988. And by the way, of that 20%, a majority, 53%, had voted for Bush. Between 1972 and 1988, youth voters either tipped Republican or split evenly, probably reflecting long-standing GOP organizing on college campuses. I talk about this in my book, Political Junkies. Well, young people voted in relatively small numbers, and they still do. However, in 1992, they tipped Democratic. Although only 11% of eligible voters in the 18 to 24 demographic cast a vote, and 10% between the ages of 25 and 29, young people went to Clinton by 13 and 5 points respectively, unseating Bush. And although they voted in even smaller numbers in 1996, young voters leaned even more heavily toward Clinton and away from the lugubrious senator from Kansas, Republican Bob Dole. The idea that young people have an investment in the future was the motivating force behind lowering the voting age to 18, a campaign for enfranchisement waged from early 1942 until July 1, 1971, when the 26th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. Then, supporters emphasized military service as the criterion for maturity. Men were eligible to be drafted at 18 and could volunteer at 17. The 18 to 24 demographic still does not punch its weight. Only 17% cast a ballot in 2020 in an election that boasted a higher participation rate, 66.3%, than any other for 120 years. Still, even if they do not vote in great numbers, young Americans are increasingly political and, in the absence of a military draft, mobilized around other issues. The high cost of education, gun violence, racial and economic justice, reproductive rights, and climate change are major issues that students organize around. 
which is why some politicians are suggesting that the federal voting age be lowered to 16, something that has already happened in three Maryland cities and Berkeley, California. Here's Democratic Massachusetts Representative Ayanna Presley on March 3rd, 2021. By lowering the federal voting age from 18 to 16 years of age, my amendment would enfranchise young Americans to help shape and inform the policies that will set the course for our future. From police violence to immigration reform to climate change to the future of work and minimum wage, our young people are organizing, mobilizing, and calling us to action. They are at the forefront of social movements and have more than earned inclusion in our democracy. Mr. Speaker, 16 and 17-year-olds, constituents of mine, are supporting their families. They are working not for enrichment or to build a resume, but because they have no choice. They are attending school full-time and taking care of loved ones in the midst of the COVID crisis. Young people are contributing both to the labor force and their local economies by paying taxes, and yet they are deprived of the opportunity to exercise their right to vote. Some have questioned the maturity of our youth. I don't. 16 and 17-year-olds today possess wisdom and maturity defined by today's challenges, hardships, and opportunities. They deserve and demand a government that is accountable to them, a government that values their voices and understands the depth and breadth of their lived experience. They are not a monolith, but they are nation builders, living through a global pandemic, confronting racial injustice, and rebuilding our democracy. Now is the time for us to meet the moment and enfranchise 16 and 17-year-olds. It's a definition of citizenship that goes beyond formal national service, linking patriotism to family and community. This could become a big issue, in part because it would potentially blunt the impact of voters 65 and over, who vote in much higher numbers and more conservatively. And it's why I turned to historian Jennifer Frost, Associate Professor of History at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, and her new book, Let Us Vote, Youth Voting Rights and the 26th Amendment, just out in paperback from New York University Press. What would it take to lower the voting age again? How did activists do it the last time? Join Jennifer and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 39, Old Enough to Fight, Old Enough to Vote. Jennifer Frost, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, Claire. I'm excited to talk about my book. And a wonderful book it is, Let Us Vote, Youth Voting Rights and the 26th Amendment. Jennifer, tell us why you decided to write about lowering the voting age to 18. As a teacher, and you'll know this because we're encountering 18 to 22-year-olds all the time at the university level, I was realizing how important their right to vote is and was. And I began to think about, you know, how did this come about? And I'm also a historian of the 1960s. And so I was able to go back and look and see this 
achievement as really one of the outcomes of the 1960s and the social movements of the 1960s. So that's what spurred me to look into it. And then as I got into doing the research, the story was even more interesting and important than I had expected. You know, one of the things I think is interesting about the arc of this book is that the move to allow 18-year-olds to vote begins in 1942 as the United States is entering World War II, um, a war that is sort of looked back on as a good war, a patriotic war, a popular war in many ways. And 18-year-olds finally get the right to vote as another war is ending, the Vietnam War. Can you talk about the relationship between war and voting in this book? It is absolutely foundational, that relationship between war and voting. And in fact, you can even trace that back further in U.S. history, because one of the first times that there was a call for young men to be enfranchised was after the Civil War. And the same argument was made. They have fought for their country. They should be rewarded with the rights of citizenship. But you're absolutely right. 1942 starts what I would call a sustained struggle and advocacy and action for lowering the voting age to 18. And it is in 1942 that the draft age, it drops to 18. And so that is when you hear calls from politicians. It starts with Jennings Randolph, very importantly, in the House of Representatives. He was from West Virginia and also Arthur Vandenberg, who was a senator from Michigan, saying if young men are going to be drafted into the military to fight in this war, they should also have the rights of citizenship. That carries through. We get greater calls for lowering the voting age with the Korean War. Uh, President Eisenhower is the first president to come out for lowering the voting age to 18. We know he was obviously the Allied commander in World War II, and he had the Korean War in mind when he argues for that. And then you're absolutely right. With the Vietnam War, the calls for lowering the voting age become greater and greater. And the first argument and the first sort of slogan, you could say, of this movement was, you have the right to fight, uh, you should have the right to vote. And to put your life at risk for your country, you should have the right to decide who's running the country, who's going to Congress, who's going to be president. Why 18? I mean, today it seems intuitive but why not 16? Why not 19? Why not 20? Why did activists pick 18 as the turning point at which young people become adults? So that first reason was exactly the draft age. Uh, and in fact, when the draft age goes up a bit, people say, well, then it shouldn't be 18 because the draft age isn't 18. But they went beyond that argument and also, of course, saying that it shouldn't just be young men who get the right to vote, but also women. And it shouldn't just be soldiers, but it should also be civilians. So they start making other arguments about 18, that at 18, young people have the maturity to vote. They have the education and knowledge to vote. And part of the really interesting side to this is the ways in which age and the meanings attached to age are a social and historical construction. So what does it mean to be at 18 
or 16 or, you know, uh, 21 is going to change over time. And that's one of the really important arguments that advocates made was to say, at this point in time, 18-year-olds have more knowledge of the world, they have more maturity, especially I think education was one of the most important arguments than their grandparents did. So they should have the right to vote. As you may know, today we have a movement to lower the voting age to 16. And so similar arguments are being raised. And I think in both cases, it's also your point about they have a lot of stake in the future. So shouldn't their issues, their needs be considered in our in our politics and in our governance? And they should have a, a voice in shaping that. So I want to come back to the point you're making about voting. And obviously, I think you're right. I mean, so many young people, for example, are involved today in climate change. They're so involved in gun control, a range of issues that they're very frustrated that politicians won't do anything about. So lowering the voting age does make sense in that regard. But before we go there, I want to think about the arguments against Lowering the voting age. Okay. I mean, we know today that political consultants, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, actually want as few people to vote as possible because you want to be able to measure who's going to vote. You don't want some wild card number of voters coming in. So political consultants often oppose same day registration because that throws their numbers off. But what were the arguments against? lowering the voting age to 18 over time? It's great that you asked that question. And in fact, when I first started working on this book, I was so compelled to tell the story of how it was achieved that I didn't talk about the opposition. And one of the peer reviewers came back and said, why did it take 30 years? You haven't really explained the opposition. And absolutely right. The opposition is right there from the beginning. And the arguments they made were essentially the opposite of the arguments that the advocates or proponents were making, that young Mm -hmm. people are too immature, they're too emotional, they don't have knowledge of the world, they haven't had enough uh, life experience or work experience. And because of that slogan, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, many people also said the characteristics that make a good soldier are not the same characteristics that make a good citizen or voter. So they undermine that argument as well. But I think the biggest argument is really kind of what you're speaking to here is, you know, this is a significant expansion of the electorate. Millions of young people end up being enfranchised with the 26th Amendment, and it throws things off for politicians, for the parties. And so it is a big, a big step. The other issue here was how does the voting age come about? Who legislates that? And this gets into a larger struggle in our country, which is Do the states have the right to determine voter qualifications, including the age of voting, or can the federal government or specifically Congress step in to set that? And so behind the whole discussion and opposition on the voting age was a state's rights federal government debate. And so often you'll see the people who thought that the voting age should not be lowered were also people who thought if it it was going to be, it should be up to the states. 
Yeah, and of course, there's another big states' rights struggle going on in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, which is the Black freedom struggle. And the right to vote is at the core of the Black freedom struggle. I had never linked these two things together. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners how it was that the Black freedom struggle provides a context and a goad and an inspiration for youth voting. Yes, this was one of my most surprising findings as well. And of course, we know these are going on at the same time, but I never thought they were so interconnected and they are very interconnected. And as we know, many of the youth movements, the feminist movement, et cetera, inspired by the civil rights and voting rights movement. But in this case, it's not just inspiration. The civil rights organizations, leaders, lobbyists were absolutely crucial to building what I call the youth franchise movement. And civil rights legislation, court decisions end up really paving the way for this. And we see this all the way back uh, in the 1950s, because in 1954, the very first time that the Senate debated whether or not to have a constitutional amendment to lower the voting age to 18, that goes down to defeat in the Senate. And the reason why is Southern Democrats were very upset about Brown v. Board of Education, which had just happened a few days before. And they mobilized to defeat this proposal because they felt it was overreach on the part of the federal government. So already at the beginning of the freedom movement, there's a link between responses to the freedom movement, what the freedom movement's doing, and this issue of youth voting rights. And it just goes all the way through the 60s and to 1971. And it's interesting because at a certain point, the fulcrum kind of turns. And all of a sudden in the 1960s, we're in the midst of a radicalized anti-war movement that is in many ways by the end of the 1960s, early 1970s, becoming violent. And um, some members are turning to terrorism and so on. So you then have proponents of youth voting saying, hey, you know, young people are really frustrated and discouraged, and they are taking it out in all of these street actions because they're not allowed to vote. So actually, youth voting could be a way to deal with these social movements. I found that fascinating. I call that, and it is called by also legal historians, the safety valve argument. And it really is first articulated in 1966 in a state campaign in Michigan to have a referendum to lower the voting age to 18 in Michigan, which was defeated. But the first time this argument's made, exactly as you said, if young people could participate in politics, then they know they have a mechanism to have their voices heard. And so instead of having to go into the streets to protest to try to have their voices heard, if you bring them into the political system, that can become their mechanism for doing that. And that 
only gains traction and not just with people in the movement, but it gains traction, I think, with the public and public opinion polling starts to really go up over the 60s. And in fact, 1968, really high polling happens there. 66% of Americans in a Gallup poll said, yes, young people should be able to vote. And that argument really played into that. But then again, you you know raise the question of the opposition. At the same time, the opposition was saying, we don't want to give those protesters the right to vote. Look at them. They're radical. They're not operating within the system in, in proper ways, et cetera. So it both fueled the proponents and moving toward more and more people seeing youth voting rights in a positive way. But there still was those opponents who used anything they could to say young people should not have the right to vote. Yeah. And there's one politician, I can't remember his name, who comes out at a certain point and says, well, we'll give them the right to vote as long as they cut their hair. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was uh, that one was in Wyoming and it was a state legislator and said uh, they would have to have a haircut like a serviceman, right? They would have to do that. And that was, of course, quite uh, unconstitutional. (laughs) You can't make that a voter qualification, how your hair looks. Uh, But exactly, it shows that you that the mood of the opposition there. And so there are a number of vehicles for trying to move this forward. One is to pass legislation at the level of the state, which a couple states do quite early on. And that reminded me a lot of women's suffrage, where you have all of these Western states who are allowing women to vote in state level elections, but they still can't vote at the federal level for decades. But there's also the Equal Protection Clause. That's another route in. A third route in is federal legislation, which ultimately passes, I think, in 1970. And then there's the final route, which is passing an amendment to the Constitution, which is the 26th Amendment. And that is, in fact, how 18-year-olds get the vote and have it enshrined in federal law. Can you talk a little bit about how these strategies evolved and why? That was one of the keys, I think, to the success of this movement was what I call strategic flexibility. And the youth franchise movement used to talk about try everything. And indeed, they did. They tried everything. And I think by having that ability to shift among strategies, that gave them a lot of cachet at different points. I mean, At the beginning of the struggle, it is uh, first a federal constitutional amendment is proposed. That's in 1942. In 1943, the first state to lower the voting age uh, was Georgia. And then in 1955, we get Kentucky and in between Guam lowers the voting age uh, to 18. And that's one of the interesting sides to the story. And you just made that parallel with women's suffrage in the West is that, in fact, the territories are quite important as pioneers here in lowering the voting age to 18 or even going under 21. So Hawaii and Alaska also had voting ages below 21. And so when they came into the United States in 1959, they brought uh, voting ages of 20 and 19. 
So that was the beginning. Uh, that was first. So constitutional amendments at both the state and federal level. And then in the 60s, as the movement uh, really starts to flourish and pop up all over uh, the country, you start to get these other strategies, including litigation. And that's where you mentioned the Equal Protection Clause. And you have young people going to court in California and in Nevada and in New York uh, saying we should have the right to vote. And then there is through legislative statute. And this is, again, where the freedom movement really matters, because when the 1965 Voting Rights Act comes up for renewal in 1970, Congress was able to add on Title III to that renewal, which lowered the voting age to 18. So by being flexible, by being able to use whatever tools they had, they eventually get to where they want to go. And Nixon signs that legislation reluctantly. He does not, in fact, want 18-year-olds to vote. And he says to his attorney general, I encourage you to sue because I think this is unconstitutional. And they do. And there's an interesting court case that evolves out of that as well. I wonder if you could describe the Supreme Court's decision about that federal legislation. Yeah, I think this is an exceptional Supreme Court decision. So it's Oregon v. Mitchell. It comes down in December 1970. So you pointed out, you know, 1970 is this really important year for lowering the voting age to 18. So it includes that federal legislation, which Nixon signs. And then we have Oregon and Texas uh, suing the federal government, and it goes to the Supreme Court. It moves quickly because the 1972 presidential election is coming up. What happens in this decision is we call it Hugo Black's majority of one. So what happens is the nine Supreme Court justices, eight of them split evenly. Four of them say that this federal legislation lowering the voting age to 18 is constitutional. It's something that Congress can do. The other four say, no, the voting age should be up to the states. So it was a states' rights, you know, federal power uh, disagreement. So the court is split. Hugo Black comes in and he agrees with both factions and he says Congress can lower the voting age for federal elections but it can't for state and local elections. So we get this, what comes to be this called a dual age voting decision, where if you're 18, you can vote for senator and your House of Representative, and you can vote for president and vice president, but you can't vote, as they said, for the local dog catcher or for mayor or for governor. And that dual age voting system you know, was going to be just untenable. And that is what then propels Congress to pass the 26th Amendment. And ratification happens incredibly swiftly. It's the most quickly ratified amendment in U.S. history. Well, and you, you don't really say this in the book, but I think your entire argument leads to what I'm about to say, which is this flexible strategy that they've pursued all along on the one hand, results in this crazy quilt system that comes out of the Supreme Court decision, Hugo Black cutting the baby in two, basically. But on the other hand, all of that state-level organizing means that they are primed. When it comes to an amendment being presented, their organizations are in place, and they can lobby the legislatures. They knew exactly what to do, and they did it. 
Am I right about that? That's right. And that is where kind of the larger argument of you don't know when the turning point is going to come for something that you're working for, right? They didn't know this was going to come. They just had, they kept working at it. They were in place at the local level, at the national level. So at the national level, the Youth uh, Franchise Coalition, which was an organization, they're lobbying Congress. They're able to marshal their forces to call and write letters to congressmen to get uh, Congress uh, people <laughs> to get that through. And then when the ratification campaign happens, they can go be in New Jersey. They can be in Michigan. They can be in Minnesota lobbying their state legislatures to be sure to pass this. So I do think all that organizing you know, pays off in, in so many different ways. And one of the lessons for me, I think, of this book is patient, persistent, consistent organizing, which we also see with the African-American freedom movement. And then when the moment comes, you're ready to go and you can have your voice heard and you can be very effective. And one of the things I was thinking about at the end of your book was no wonder feminists thought they could pass ERA in 1972. (laughs) An amendment to the constitution had just been passed that had been thought of as truly radical a decade earlier, but it went through, as you say, more quickly than any amendment ever had. And so you see feminists kind of looking at this and saying, okay, let's go. And of course it doesn't work for them. And I just wanted to ask you to spitball a little bit on this. Why does youth voting pass and ERA struggles and fails over the next decade. So these two uh, proposed amendments are proceeding at the same time. So, you know, in the Senate, there are hearings on the ERA the same year that there are hearings on lowering the voting age to 18. And there was a debate about which one goes first, right? So the Birch uh, Bai, who was a senator from Indiana, he was making decisions about this. And so you're absolutely right. They thought it was going to happen much more quickly. Um, I'm actually writing a book right now about Martha Griffiths, who was this quote unquote mother of the ERA. And she was so confident that she let the ERA legislation have a date by which it had to be ratified. Most amendments don't have that. So this was a rather unique thing. It was a, She gave it sort of as a sop to the opponents. We'll get this ratified in seven years. She was absolutely confident it was going to be ratified in seven years. I think the other issue is the ERA passes Congress and then the feminist movement starts organizing in these states, et cetera, whereas the youth franchise movement was already in place. So there's a timing benefit there that the youth franchise movement had for getting their amendment through. But then I think we have to really talk about backlash. I mean, there was no time really for a backlash against youth voting to come into play, to mobilize, unlike the ERA. And that dual age 
voting system was going to cost the states a fortune because you were going to have to have separate ballots for young people, whether it was state or federal elections. Whereas with the ERA, you have states saying, you know, this is going to be complicated, how we are going to have to change our laws, et cetera. So for the states, it was to their benefits to ratify the 26th Amendment. The ERA was much more a complex sort of situation. So I think multiple factors. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is that the constant wartime footing from 1942 on naturally produces this argument that it's about men, you know, and, and women, young women will be allowed to vote too. But it's really about these men who are being called into national service, but without any say over when they go to war or why or whatever. And of course, the ERA isn't about men and is often seen as taking away from men. That's right. That's right. And I do think this balancing of rights and responsibilities, right? So always that argument, you know, old enough to fight, old enough to vote is about balancing citizenship rights and responsibilities, whereas the ERA is framed as rights. And I think that is is part of the uh, issue there, too, that benefits the 26th Amendment. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I was thinking as I was reading your book is that even without voting, young people between the ages of 18 and 21 were very politically engaged. And of course, by the 1950s and 60s, there's the Black freedom struggle, there's the anti-war movement, but there's also all of these politics going on in high school and college. And there are the Young Republicans Association, you know, Paul Weyrich and Richard Vigory, who were two of the big masters of modern political media. They cut their teeth in the Young Republicans before they can vote. And so, in fact, there's this idea that the political parties have that you can train young people to be citizens, but withhold full citizenship until they're 21. And that's a tension too, right? That is. And one of the key groups of of proponents here are student governments. So sort of student government officers, both in high school and in colleges and universities, are absolutely important to this. The National Student Association, absolutely important to this movement. And one of the arguments they made is, if we graduate from high school at 18 and we can't vote to 21, that's a gap. That's a gap that can breed frustration, can breed apathy. Whereas if we move right from high school where we're taking our social studies classes and civics and we move right to become voters, that's going to develop that habit of voting. And we know, and in fact, it's true today, that if you develop the habit of voting, you register to vote, et cetera, you'll be more consistent uh, in voting. But you're also raising the importance of the young Democrats and the young Republicans. So Beginning in the 40s, those groups, especially starting with the young Democrats, but by the 50s, the young Republicans are also saying lower the voting age to 18. They're putting pressure on the parties. In 1961, the party chairman of both the Democrats and the Republicans go to Senate hearings and say we support lowering the voting age. 
different routes uh, at that time. The Democrats wanted to have the states lower the voting age, whereas the Republicans at that time thought it should be a federal constitutional amendment. In 1968, both parties have it in their platforms to lower the voting age to 18, but they've switched on the strategies. By that time, Nixon and the Republicans are saying it's the states who should do it, and the Democrats are now saying uh, it should be a federal government. But that key piece to the story is student government, students in the parties pushing too. And that's why this is a coalition. This is a coalition of young people, teachers, young student teachers in the NEA, the NAACP is active. I mean, the number of organizations in the Youth Franchise Coalition is tens and tens and tens. You know, it's about 70 or so organizations. And so by having this coalition, they can bring people from all walks of life, all different political persuasions to make this case for lowering the voting age to 18. And I just want to underline this for our listeners. This is bipartisan. And I think some of our younger listeners don't even recognize that there was a bipartisan world, that there was a world in which there were liberals in both the Republican and Democratic parties who had the same ideals and moved them forward in similar ways and in partnership with each other. And believed in building the United States into an inclusive democracy. And that is one of the arguments I really stress or findings I really stress. The first president to endorse lowering the voting age was Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, And all along, you see the importance of, of these Republicans, both on the state level and at the federal level, advocating for lowering the voting age. And they believed in democracy. They believed in matching rights and responsibilities. Responsibilities. And in fact, after the 2022 midterms that we had last year, there were some calls for raising the voting age. And I wrote an op-ed piece to say, remember when the Republicans supported youth voting rights and sought to mobilize young people. And in fact, Richard Nixon wins the youth vote in 1972. That's really interesting. So the idea that we're enfranchising young people because they're actually going to be more left wing or more liberal is totally false. They don't know how it's going to turn out. And I think that's another aspect of this past political world that younger listeners will not really grasp is that sometimes people passed legislation because it was right not because it promoted their own agenda. (laughs) That's absolutely right. Uh, And I mean, there were those who were worried of how it was going to upset, you know, their campaigns, et cetera. But the majority did it because they believed it was the right thing to do. And also, I think, believed they could mobilize and motivate voters to their agenda. And that's one of the things you don't see here in our current age is certainly the GOP could try to play to young people, right, could endorse issues that they're concerned about. Richard Nixon did. So when he runs in 72, he had supported the 26th Amendment, at least by signing off on the 1970 legislation. But he also worked to do environmental legislation, etc. And so he went out to court that youth vote, and it was successful for him. That's really important. So, Jennifer, I could talk to you about this book forever. There's so much in it. It brings together what I would call the liberal 1960s. I mean, we think about the 60s as this sort of moment of insurgent politics. 
and we've forgotten how much liberals accomplished and that there was a real liberal vision going into the 1970s that came out of moments like this. But I can't keep you forever. So could you tell our listeners, why should they read this book now? I hope they read this book now, and it is coming out in paperback this month. I think they should read it to appreciate the achievement of the 26th Amendment and all the campaigns and participants who brought this about. It is not easy to amend the United States Constitution. There's only 27 amendments, whereas there have been some 12,000 proposals to amend the U.S. Constitution. So achieving this is so important. But also it's important intrinsically that we have welcomed young people into our politics, into governance, and I want to appreciate it and to build on it and to continue to protect it. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Mm-hmm.